Good afternoon here in Milan. This is the latest around the world in 20 minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And I am again back in Milan in between trips, having had a fascinated week rallying the troops for realism in Washington. Uh, the first real political organizing I've done in years. And it was great fun to be there with John. Next week, I'm off to actually the studio in London to read the audiobook for our upcoming book, The Last Best Hope. And so I'm spending three days in the studio reading the long form of the book, which is a great way to do this. When I started my career a million years ago, I remember they said, oh, there's this other side little thing about audiobooks you might be interested in. You have to sign up to have your book have an audio version. And at the time, audiobooks represented about 1% or 2% of the take. Now it's up, upwards of 40, 50. It's about half of the way people gather information. Whereas I'm an old reactionary bookman, many younger people use this as a way to, to read, in essence, or to listen. That's in line with podcasts, I suppose, and I think it's great. I we're embracing the new media fully um, on our book tour coming up, which will be largely run by new media. And so it's going to be great to spend three final days in the studio in London recording the audio book. I'm, I'm not meeting with much of anybody, all my friends in London, uh, it's, a, it's the Langham and early to bed and early to rise and an awful lot of work. And as a reward at the end, Sarah and I are going to go to the theater, the Globe Theater, um, and famously see Macbeth and uh, have, a, have high tea a week Saturday as a reward to celebrate. Really the end for me of the book process, we move on to publicizing the book. And... Again, uh, we've, we've give, been given our marching orders in line with publicizing the book on how to defeat the algorithm. And, and I wanted to share that with our community that on Jan, I will mention this about 8 million times. On January 10th, 2024, the book is officially released um, for Amazon. And that's the day to defeat the algorithm. Tell everybody you know who is a friend at all to the work that we do that that's the day on January 10th to go to the American Amazon site give us the five stars and all at once say, can't wait to get the book or something to that effect. I'm not asking you to perjure yourself about the detail, but if you can go on immediately on January 10th, 2024, as the book is released and everybody can in unison say, can't wait to receive the book and give us those five stars, we will very quickly get the giant whale that is Amazon to be working for us. We'll crack the algorithm um, and then this will really help as a huge multiplier for the book. So for our community, that's D-Day, January 10th, 2024, uh, when I need you to go online, the American Amazon, give us the five stars and say, can't wait to receive the book. And that will make things move very, very quickly. Thank you, of course, uh, from the bottom of my heart for your endless support. Um, and in line with the book, we're going to start, though not finish, what I think is the pivotal chapter of the book. When you say, what was he thinking? What, were, what, what does a writer think when he's writing? I was really happy with the beginning of the book, particularly laying out the first two geopolitical revolutions of three that the United States foreign policy scene has had and was happy with the way things were going. But I needed an exclamation point to take this book from the good to the great. And sometimes you just have to be patient. I, I knew that. I knew that we were close, but not quite there. But to make it revolver or rubber sole or pet sounds or forever changes by love, what did I have to do to make this great? And I think this chapter is the one that puts it over the top from good to great. Chapter five of the book, when we look at the unlikely realist Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, 
The title of the chapter is Fighting When It's Necessary, Franklin Roosevelt Saves the United States from the Nazi Peril. And this is such an important chapter that we're going to do it in two parts because I think it really merits that. So I can really lay out who Roosevelt was, what he thought, and what he did. So the first part here, we're going to look at who Roosevelt was, what he thought, and really in part two, we're going to look at what he did next week. I'll somehow manage to do this from London in between all all the mayhem, um, I hope. He says cautiously, I hope next week, but I will keep to our record. We'll always publish something for the community every single week. Also next week, I'm hoping to start our Hemingway uh, retrospective uh, when we look at why Ernest Hemingway matters. And we'll start with Fiesta, his first great novel, really a rival for for, uh, Gatsby. Uh, But before that, I wanted to go through why Franklin Roosevelt is so important to the book and so important to American foreign policy, because here I found the third great geopolitical innovation of American foreign policy thinking. And best of all, I discovered a new theory coming out of this. And this is rare in in our world. I've had some theories in the past uh, that have have lasted. Ethical realism, the book I wrote with Anatole Levin, some of my ideas on, on the problems of humanitarian intervention have worn like a good wine pretty well. Uh, but in your life, if you're if you're good at what I do, you probably have five or six utterly original thoughts, and that's more than enough, and that we all stand on the shoulders of the Greeks. But there are genuine creative innovations, and that's what you're always striving for. And here in Chapter 5, after being patient and doing a ton of research, I found mine. This idea of the Roosevelt Rule is new, and really it's the Holy Grail for realism. And by that, I mean that many opponents, Wilsonian and neoconservative opponents of realism, will say, yeah, you know, you always say no, and after the fact, we shouldn't intervene here. But when should we intervene? When should we go in? If you know so well about when not to go in, which even our enemies tend to give us, when should we go in? And this is the holy grail that's really been missing from realist thinking for a very long time. And I think In Chapter 5, with the unlikely realist figure of Franklin Roosevelt, noted and genuine leftist by American standards, the most liberal Democratic leader that party has had really up until Joe Biden or maybe Lyndon Johnson, um, I think you find an unlikely realist. And if you look at, there are a number of books, Gene Edward Smith's biography of Roosevelt is excellent, even better, Conrad Black's biography of Franklin Roosevelt, where he really lays out the case that Roosevelt is not a ra- not a revolutionary, but a conserver. Um, I take that idea a step further and say he's actually an unlikely realist, and he provides us with the holy grail for when intervention is necessary for the United States, which is the third great innovation in American foreign policy thinking, the first since John Quincy Adams, and frankly the one that we still live under today with America as a superpower. America under Hamilton, uh, with that innovation, had gone to a continental power and envisaged America as a continental power, as always a great power. John Quincy Adams and the Monroe Doctrine take us to being a hemispheric power, but it's Franklin Roosevelt who takes us the rest of the way to if America is a global great power or the global superpower or ordering power, how should it act? When should it intervene? And creatively, originally, I think I have the answer. So I thought this was worth two separate bites of the apple. But to begin with, I think we need to look in detail, as the book does, chapter five does, at Roosevelt's biography. 
One of the things that my political risk firm does, and I think one of the reasons we're more successful than the other ones, is we have this historical base that, that so few do. They tend to d dwell in the realm of political science, which is very theoretical, and like all theory, it can lead you astray pretty quickly. The basic practical strength of his history is its life as it's actually been lived by human beings for the last three or 4,000 years since writing began. That history, as Henry Ford says, if it doesn't repeat itself, it at least rhymes. If we find the patterns in history, we can see where we've been, where we are, and most importantly, where we're going. And that's really the key to the firm's success, that we all believe that. And our very different personalities, that's the common link. And Roosevelt, and so we scour when we do political risk. We scour biographies of leaders to look at what makes them tick, what makes them unique, good and bad, and how from this can we predict how they're likely to react. As the great Greek Stoic philosopher Heraclitus put it, character is destiny. And rarely has this been more true than with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. His biography explains not only his destiny, but that of his country. Um, until 1921, I think it would be safe to say that Franklin Roosevelt was a man who walked between the raindrops. Born into a very old family of wealth and privilege um, at his parents' beautiful Hyde Park estate in New York. If ever you're in upstate New York, I commend that you go see it. I, I remember going with Ollie a long time ago to see it and it making a huge impression. I saw it with my parents and then Ollie and making a huge impression on me. It's this picturesque, beautiful Hudson River Valley estate, literally alongside the river. And it's, it's hard to think to be as far away from the common man as is possible. And Roosevelt was born into this un, unimaginably good opulence and, and family, old Hudson River Valley family, of course, Dutch in background, going to New Amsterdam even before New York. And he was born into this wealth and opulence January 30th, 1882. He was the beloved son of doting parents, James, and especially Sarah, and his life proceeded as you would think it would. He went from Groton on to Harvard Law, um, on to a, a listless career in legal matters he didn't care about, but he was able to pursue his active interest in politics. Roosevelt, beyond the wealth of his fine old Dutch family, was directly involved with the most important political family at the time. He was a distant cousin of Theodore Roosevelt, the great early 20th century American president. And in fact, in 1905, he married Eleanor, TR's favorite niece, uh, who was a distant relative of his. And they had a very difficult marriage. It survived infidelity, tragedy, and cataclysmic political events, as well as them simply growing apart. But Eleanor was there for Franklin at the most important moment of his life here in the 1920s, and she remained an invaluable advisor to him for the whole of his life. That in a weird way, as their personal bond receded after the crisis of Roosevelt's affair with Eleanor's private secretary, Lucy Mercer, after this recedes, their political and emotional ties, oddly enough, in a way, actually get stronger. And in the 1930s, when he's president, she's his leg. She's the one who can travel the country can go down into a coal mine and tell him what's going on with common people, particularly in the Depression era, Eleanor is an inner circle advisor. And she again was there for him at this worst moment of his life. Um, he effortlessly ascended through New York politics, largely through his name. Because Teddy was a, was a Republican, uh, FDR decided to become a Democrat to go his own way but keep the name. He became a state senator, was reelected, 
And then, as World War I was dawning, was made Assistant Secretary of the Navy in the Wilson administration, where he was, if somewhat duplicitous to his senior, a very energetic and generally very, very effective Assistant Secretary. Better, in 1990, 1920, he was made Democratic Vice Presidential Candidate alongside the presidential nominee, Governor James Cox of Ohio. And although Cox was, was destroyed in the election by Warren G. Harding, FDR made a good uh, sense of his fight, uh, barnstormed across the country, and did his name no harm at all. And it was genuinely thought in the 1920s his moment to run for president was coming. So it was a life, a gilded, opulent life, where he had effortlessly ascended, perhaps too effortlessly, if one believes in the Greek gods as I do, perhaps too effortlessly ascended to prominence. And then in late July 1921, Roosevelt gave a speech to a Boy Scout camp at Bear Mountain in upstate New York. It is almost certainly at Bear Mountain that he contracted infantile paralysis or polio. On August 10, 1921, at his family's summer retreat at Campobello Island, New Brunswick in Canada, he came down with a fever of 102 degrees and severe leg pain. By the next evening, so in the course of just two ways, Days. This went from his fever and leg pains to him being paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life. Now imagine this. He went to sleep almost literally with a gilded existence only to emerge crippled for the rest of his life. And yet, despite the terror, and this must have caused unmitigated terror in the man, he didn't flinch. And in the odd way that life tends to work, polio was to be the making of Roosevelt. Until now, he had been seen by outsiders as a charming, able, but lightweight, shallow man who was very good at a dinner party. If you needed an extra in the summer uh, in Washington when Roosevelt was assistant secretary, he was your man. Very good at small talk, which he remained good at for the rest of his life. Charming, but shallow. He left the heavier business of lifting in life to others. After polio, nobody would say that this is who Franklin Roosevelt was. Rather, the disease and the strength of surviving it taught him patience and an iron will. Um, it's almost hard to say that a man was better fit for the time. Think of this. This man who wakes up in this wonderful existence and out of nothing can't walk anymore. He's the one who just a few short years later in the 1930s, with his shell-shocked countrymen on their knees, with unemployment in the United States running, at 25%, with revolution brewing, with bank holidays and bank collapse facing us, here is the man who can actually understand what he means when he says, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. He knew this to the marrow of his bones from his personal experience. Rarely has a man in the moment met better than Franklin Roosevelt, and this is because of his overcoming of the undoubted tragedy of his polio. This was the key fact. So it taught him these things, and it was an important, if not critical, factor in his renaissance. I think it's the key factor. So what was it like for Roosevelt to have polio? Every single day, if he had to get up at all, he had to wear 14-pound leg braces and to have crutches, and this enabled him to walk, in quotations. This was really a trick. He never walked. I mean, this is so Rooseveltian. It's both heroic, single-minded, ruthless, brave, and somewhat of a trick. 
what he would do was that he'd build up his upper body. He became an endlessly powerful upper body. He'd gone into Worm Springs, Georgia, which he eventually made into a premier polio retreat for people trying to fight the disease. And in the warm waters, he could move his legs in, in, in the sulfuric waters of the bath down at Warm Springs. And so he'd swim, but the rest of the time he built up his upper body. And so what he would do would be he would sit in his chair, he would lift himself out of the chair, which takes tremendous strength. Everybody tried doing that at home. It takes tremendous strength to be able to do. He would put himself upright, straighten the braces on his legs or have someone do that. These 14 pounds of braces on the legs. And then he'd have his crutches in place. And then he'd have two big men, either secret service agents or quite often his own sons. Uh, James and Elliot would do this, among other Franklin Roosevelt Jr. And they would, they would, help him and he would gamble down. It wasn't quite walking, but with the braces in place and the crutches, he could move forward. And once he was up, the men would see to it that he wouldn't slip on either side of him. It almost looked like walking. It looked like he'd somehow, and polio was terrified people at this time. This is before the Sabin vaccine. This is before any cure. And they were terrified of contracting it. Um, and so people seeing him survive and surmount, in quotations, polio, this was the key to him coming back. The other key at the time specifically was that Eleanor and his political confidant, Louis Howe, who is really underrated. Louis Howe is an underrated figure in Roosevelt's story. He's this cantankerous, grumpy, dirty, rumpled man. Sarah Roosevelt hated having him underfoot at Hyde Park, where she wanted to protect Franklin and have him retire. But Louis Howe, and Eleanor saw to it that he stayed engaged in politics, engaged in the future, and they wouldn't let him be shunted aside. And this magic trick that he practiced became the key. And I've been on Roosevelt's driveway. My father showed me this. And it's this lengthy, beautiful driveway in Hyde Park. And this is where he practiced walking using this technique that I talked about of strength, uh, straightening the braces and then gambling down with two people on either side with the crutches. The test for this recovery came on June 26, 1924, when Roosevelt had been asked by the Democratic Party to give a nominating speech for Al Smith, the uh, New York nominee for president at Madison Square Garden in New York. If Franklin Roosevelt had fallen crossing the stage and then he had to grip the stage and hold on, uh, while he was speaking, again, this huge upper body strength. And as he spoke, he held onto the rostrum, and then he would have to have the two men, his sons in this case, hand him the crutches and then gamble back. If he had fallen, he would have been unable to be have anything to do but look like a bug on its back. They would have had to pick him up, and his political career certainly would have been over. He practiced over and over again in the Hyde Park driveway. And my father showed this out to me as a sign to be perseverant in life. And it's something I've, I've always remembered when times have been bad, is Roosevelt doing this. And that people have come before me have overcome more. And it's important to remember that as a historian. Anyway, he made it at Madison Square Garden and the speech was a great success. Nine years later, a mere nine years later, the depression has knocked America off its legs and the man of destiny has come forward. Instead of being seen as immature and shallow, if charming, he's now seen as shrewd, patient, calm, ruthless, unflappable, and soon to be the legendary leader 
who would become a political legend. And all this came out of Roosevelt becoming FDR because of polio. Without it, Roosevelt does not morph into the FDR that we know. And so this tragedy becomes his triumph. And you have to think of that, again, these qualities, that he's shrewd, that he's patient, that he's calm, that he's relentless when he sees the obstacle ahead of him, unflappable. These are the qualities that are going to guide us through the Depression and then World War II. And Roosevelt will need all of these qualities to move the country toward a position where it can help save the world. Secondly, I think it's important to see Roosevelt as an unlikely realist. Early on, even although Roosevelt didn't get really involved, and he comes to power the election in 1932, where he overwhelmingly defeats the hapless Her Herbert Hoover, but he doesn't really get involved into foreign affairs in a big way until 1937. Those five or six years, he's trying to save the country through the Depression, and his focus is almost laser-like on the Great Depression. But even early on, and Hitler comes to power in 33, in 1933, early on, he sees Nazi Germany as a revolutionary power determined to destroy the world order. And this is a key realist moment and one of the signs that I can point to as to why Roosevelt is a realist. That a key factor in thinking is always, are you fighting Milosevic or are you fighting Hitler? Is this some tin pot dictator? And it doesn't really matter whether he succeeds or not because he's not threatening the region or the order of the world, but he's merely a little local disturbance, or are you fighting somebody who wants to overturn the world order that you yourself may like? This is a key point. Are you a status quo power, or are you a revolutionary power? And Roosevelt correctly and early on sees that uh, Hitler is a revolutionary power. And in fact, he says an off the cuff to some newspaper reporters in, I think, 1938, Hitler's a nut. You know, he's, he's, he's scathing about Hitler, but also sees the danger coming at him. And what he does over this next period of time is to propound this Roosevelt rule, which to me, and is my original idea, is this idea of the third great geostrategic innovation in American foreign policy thinking, and that's now. And this third innovation simply has it that this is when the United States as a superpower or world great power should intervene or, or not. It answers the question for realists of our critics. Yeah, you know when not to. And after the fact, you're always so wise about what we did wrong. But when would you intervene? That's a perfectly good question. I mean, I, the neocons, the Wilsonians are right to raise it. And we tend to look at our shoes and hem and haw and don't answer it decisively. And I think with studying Roosevelt, I can now answer the question decisively, that the Roosevelt rule explains when the United States, from Roosevelt all the way up until now, no changes, no fourth innovation needed. Roosevelt, up until now, you can answer this question. And the Roosevelt rule builds on what the British did with their foreign policy, really from the glorious revolution onward. And British foreign policy was very, very simple when they were the dominant power in Europe and indeed the world. Europe was the, was, was the cockpit of power in the world. And so the British would always side with the second greatest power in Europe to take down the greatest power. That the only threat to the emerging British empire and to its global dominance was a threat coming from Europe. It had more people, more ports, more wherewithal, more trading venues, more resources than the British did nearby. And so if the British were, were to remain dominant as an island off of this primary landmass, they always had to side with the second biggest power and always balance 
the greatest power. And that's why the British are against Louis XIV, the Sun King. Why going back to Queen Elizabeth, they're against the Spanish and their Armada, the Habsburg Spanish Empire, why they're against later on Napoleon, and then the Kaiser, and then Hitler. It follows logically all the way through. And whether they knew it or not, this is what the British leaders were taught with their mother's milk. You can't let anybody dominate Europe or we're in great trouble. This is a primary British interest. We'll always side with the smaller powers against an emerging hegemon in Europe because it has too many people, too many ports, too much wealth, too many resources that if any one power dominating it takes over, we're in peril and our position as the greatest power in the world is really on the line. Roosevelt took this uh, basic idea, which worked brilliantly for the British, uh, was the key to their success in the empire, I would argue, and he enlarged it. He simply said, the British were an island off of Europe, but the United States really in the Western Hemisphere is an island off the Eurasian global island, the global world island of Europe and Asia. Anybody who's played Risk knows this, the great board game, that if you, if you control Europe and Asia, you're going to win the game. There are hugely too many people there are too many resources, there are too many ports, there's too much financial wherewithal, that if anybody dominates either portion of the Eurasian world island, either Europe or Asia, the United States is in desperate trouble because the Western Hemisphere, abundant as it is, will only be an island off this Eurasian dominant landmass. So Roosevelt updates the British theory, adds in Asia, and says nobody can dominate either two of these areas. And if anybody threatens to dominate the whole of Europe or the whole of Asia, the United States must get actively involved in a minimum balancing against them, but be prepared to fight if necessary. And that's where we are today. This explains why I am against the Ukraine intervention, because Russia can't even invade Ukraine, let alone march into Berlin or Paris or Rome or London. Nobody is in a position to dominate Europe, so I don't need to take that as a primary interest. It follows simply from the Roosevelt rule. On the other hand, China threatening Taiwan and threatening to dominate the Indo-Pacific does make it a potential threat, a potential rival superpower. And if it did succeed in taking Taiwan and dominating the Indo-Pacific, the United States would be in grave, grave peril. That the rise of China is a primary American concern and a primary American national interest. And I can get to this point by using the Roosevelt Rule. I can coherently answer when to invade, when not. Where to put my efforts, where not to. Where I, at the minimum I have to balance and where I can let things take their own course. It, the Roosevelt Rule is everything. And Franklin Roosevelt, in propounding this, sees to his horror that there are two threats to America. The primary one he rightly sees in Nazi Germany, but a secondary, if very important one, in the rise of Imperial Japan, as in the 1930s it tries to take vast swaths of China and plans to move on to get resources in areas where it casts its covetous eyes at resource-rich Dutch East Indies, at the British colonies, in Hong Kong, in, in, in Singapore, and even as far as India, that this is, this is a great threat moving ahead. And so Roosevelt propounds this Roosevelt rule, which I've discovered and which I think is still the key to when the United States should intervene and not now. It's the realist answer to the holy grail question of when do we have a primary interest on the line 
and when do we not? And that's why this chapter is so fundamental to the book. This is original, creative, new work on an idea that I think explains almost everything. Um, practically, Roosevelt began to explain to some of his advisors, think of it this way. The, why should we support Great Britain? There was a lot of division in the United States. People were sympathetic to the British overwhelmingly, but why support them when they could possibly fail? And if we give them all this wherewithal and the Nazis take them over anyway, we're just throwing uh, good money after bad. And Roosevelt said, no, 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 you're looking at this all wrong. Think of it back to, again, American geostrategy. And again, the Roosevelt rule is nothing if not geostrategic. He said, you know, since the time of John Quincy Adams, the second great innovation, the Monroe Doctrine, the Royal Navy has de facto been protecting the United States and the Western Hemisphere from European efforts at meddling. If the Nazis were to get hold of the British fleet, which would certainly be uh, the price of them if, if they were to successfully invade, then that not only would the British fleet no longer protect the Western Hemisphere, but the Nazis would have at their disposal a way to get to the Western Hemisphere. That on its own makes Britain a vital U.S. interest and worth fighting for out on the front line. And this is the, him modifying the Roosevelt Rule to explain this to his advisors. But the Roosevelt Rule shows that the Nazis and the Japanese are existential threats to primary American interests. Yet at the same time that Roosevelt reaches this horrifying understanding, he also sees painfully and is painfully aware that his countrymen have yet to re reach this conclusion that the United States of the 1930s is, is passing a serious neutrality act saying, you know, burned by World War One and the aftermath of the vainglorious Wilson overreaching. The last thing they want is further involvement in European affairs. So they they're they're isolationist and inward looking. He has to somehow convince his countrymen that these interests that he's raising are worth fighting for and worth dying for if necessary. Fortunately, in Roosevelt, and I've mentioned some of his attributes, we have a devious, and I don't mean this negatively, leader. The Roosevelt's modus operandi on any issue was to take as wide a view of the issue as possible, but he was the only decision maker. He didn't like to sit around and let's have, like Bill Clinton did, let's have a college-like discussion where everybody puts in their sixth sense. Roosevelt rather would call key advisors in, often one-on-one, -on -one, would be charming, would be expansive, would listen to them, and all these advisors would always leave thinking, oh, he's going to do exactly what I say, not realizing they're merely dots in the pointless painting, that he's gathering all this information and being charming to everyone while deciding at the end what he's going to do. He would hold back, gather as much information, be as charming to everyone as he could, and then ruthlessly make his own decision. Um, he used his charm in, in a way that reminds me of Eisenhower, JFK, or Reagan, where his surface amiability hid this kind of iron toughness beneath. And it's a very effective way to make things work. Um, and it's a good thing that it was, because while Roosevelt is gathering opinions, he's facing, as he realizes once the Roosevelt rule is in place, the greatest foreign policy crisis since the revolution. And he comes up with, through the Roosevelt rule, the third great foreign policy innovation. Answering that key realist question what am I, uh, about when to intervene and when not to intervene. Roosevelt knew the stakes were almost immeasurably high. He said um, in 1938, I believe, what America does or fails to do in the next few years has a far greater influence and bearing on the history of the whole human race for centuries to come than most of us who are here today can even conceive. 
What America does or fails to do in the next few years has a far greater bearing and influence on the, on the whole of the human race for centuries to come than most of us who are here today can even begin to conceive. He's aware that the stakes are almost immeasurable, like Churchill, that fighting off the dark night of Nazi barbarism and tyranny is a vital threat, and that by his own measurement of the Roosevelt rule, by his own yardstick of when to intervene or not, he has to. He has to balance at a minimum the United States in favor uh, of Britain, um, France at the time, and against the Nazis, and Imperial Japan. And yet at the same time, he knows his countrymen are asleep and are steps away. And unlike Wilson, who would have said, well, who cares what they think, and been destroyed, Roosevelt, a far cannier political operator, realizes that because of this, he has to bring his people along little by little, as fast as he can, but salami slices, baby steps, not huge steps, which will scare them, but baby steps so that they will, on their own, come to the conclusion that he reached with the Roosevelt rule, which is that the Nazis are someone worth fighting against when fighting is both noble and necessary. Thank you very much. This has been great fun to do. This is my favorite chapter. I'll admit cards on the table in the book. I love a lot of them. I love doing Seward with you guys, Bora. But this is a fantastically fun chapter because he's such a compelling personality. And the Roosevelt rule is the original scholarship that to me answers the realist holy grail question that's been dormant for so long. When do you actually want to intervene then? We can answer that using the Roosevelt rule. Now that we've seen who our man is, and what he thinks. The next part, part two of this next week of chapter five will be, how does he get us there? And it's just genius. The chess playing, the moves that he makes are just genius. So please do join us for that one. And again, the big date for us for as a community is January 10th, 2024. Please go on Amazon online on January 10th, 2024. Not before, not after, but January 10th is the date. Give us the five stars and say, can't wait to get the book. And let's defeat the mighty Amazon algorithm and get it working for us. But I'm so excited to sell the Roosevelt rule and what we've learned in this book to really remake realism for the Republican Party and the rest of the world. Those are the stakes we're playing for. Stakes FDR would understand. Thanks a ton. And I'll see you next week in London.